Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Heredity Podcast. This week we're sequencing chimpanzees in zoos for conservation and tracing cryptic refugia in the glacial histories of the Atlantic salmon. I'm Jeff Marsh. Our closest living relative, the chimpanzee, is a high priority for conservationists. There are four recognised subspecies and the IUCN has categorised all of them as endangered in the wild. Conservationists' priority is to maintain the natural populations in their equatorial African habitat, but zoo populations offer an insurance policy for possible reintroduction if the situation worsens. And in order to pull off such an adventurous Plan B, we need to know the genetic structuring of the wild populations and tailor captive breeding programmes accordingly. I spoke to Christina Wilson at the Copenhagen Zoo in Denmark to learn more. The chimpanzee as a species only lives in one place in nature, and that's in equatorial Africa, from Guinea in the west to uh, Uganda in the east. Throughout the species distribution range, uh, we have four currently recognized subspecies. So in the west, we have the West African subspecies. In Nigeria and uh, northern Cameroon, we have the Nigerian Cameroonian subspecies. And then in Central Africa, um, we have the Central African subspecies. And then lastly, towards east, we have the East African subspecies. But in the zoo community, we have different regions. So for the European region, we have around 850 individuals. And do those subspecies represent more than just where you find them? They differ, of course, genetically. Um, that's also a part of the study where we looked at uh, more than 100 individuals from throughout species distribution range, and we found them to, to differ genetically. Although, I must say, these uh, subspecies have, um, for some of them, they are neighboring, so their geographical distribution ranges lie next to each other. And so we see that there are some intermixing between the subspecies in these regions where, where the distribution ranges lie next to each other. Okay, and one group of chimpanzees that obviously lie very close to each other are those in captivity. Indeed. And unfortunately, we knew that we would probably be able to find some hybridization between subspecies in captivity. And so that's the idea then behind your work, is that in order to create a, a, a sensible breeding program, you first of all need to work out the genetic structuring and diversity in the wild and then see what you've got in captivity. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. We needed to go to, to the wild, to, to Africa, and try to map the genetic diversity of these subspecies in order to go in and, and origin determine chimpanzees in captivity. And so is the aim of all this then um, looking forward to sort of reintroduction programs? Because of the declining population trend in the wild, 
we we see unfortunately a, a possibility for a reintroduction in the future if the species and the subspecies goes towards extinction in the wild. So if we come to that situation where we are we have so few individuals um, left in the wild, then zoological gardens function as a kind of a reservoir. Um, where we have a lot of animals that we could potentially reintroduce to the wild. But in order for us to reintroduce animals, one of the aspects are to reintroduce individuals to the right geographical location. And in order for us to do that, we need to know the origin of the individuals. So as it is now, we, we know that there are some adaptations um, of the individual subspecies. And that could, for example, be adaptations for specific diseases. And as it is now, we don't know the origin of our individuals. We have around 150, 200 individuals of the total population in Europe, um, which consists of 850 individuals. And these 150, 200 individuals, we know the origin of those. But the rest, we don't know the origin of them. So presumably you were hoping to find chimps in captivity from each of those locations. Yes, we were definitely hoping to find individuals belonging to one or more of the subspecies recognized. Um, and of course, a, a low level of hybridization. But we genotyped around 20% of the European population. And of these 20%, well, 40% belong to the West African subspecies, which is a good thing. And on top of that, uh, we actually found 18% belonging to the Central African subspecies. And then lastly, we find 5% belonging to the East African subspecies. But no evidence of the Nigerian Cameroonian subspecies in captivity. So, and these 40% belonging to the West African subspecies will actually be included in the existing uh, breeding program for this subspecies, which is the only one currently. But what is good and very surprising was that we found actually 18% belonging to the Central African subspecies. And the diversity is so high, so we're actually able to start a new breeding program for this subspecies, which is, is quite amazing. So now that you have this information, are you going to kind of keep the West African from the Central African so that there's, yes. no, there's no way that they sort yes. of mix with yes. each other? So we would like to try and preserve the uh, subspecies in captivity as we will find them in nature. So we will, of course, continue the breeding program for the West African subspecies and keep those separated from the Central African subspecies. And um, what about the, the other two then? Are they lost causes? Uh, no evidence of the Nigerian Cameroonian. No individuals so far has been genotyped to belong to this subspecies in captivity in Europe. Um, but we found 5% of the genotyped individuals to belong to the East African subspecies. The diversity is quite high, but unfortunately all these individuals were females, so you can't start a breeding program with only females. And remember that we've only genotyped 20% of the European population, so we still have around 80% remaining that we haven't genotyped. We are in the process of genotyping them, but we haven't genotyped them yet, so there could potentially still be individuals out there belonging to either the East African or the Nigerian Cameroonian subspecies. And so are you optimistic then about the future of reintroduction? 
I hope we will never get to that. All efforts should, of course, go towards protecting these subspecies in the wild. Of course, if we do get to that situation, then yes, we're taking the first steps now towards preserving the subspecies in captivity. As it is now, we already have two of the subspecies represented by a breeding program. So, so yes, I am quite optimistic. And does this work serve then as a good model for other captive taxa? Yes, of course. This is basically what uh, conservation should be about. Go in and, and determine the genetic structure of the species in uh, the wild and then couple it uh, to the conservation efforts in captivity. That was Christina Wilson. So that was tracing the geographic origins of chimpanzees over a few generations. But what about when we're interested in tracking animal population histories much further back? Jamie Stevens has been tracking the glacial histories of the Atlantic salmon. Like many other species, salmon would have been forced further and further south into little pockets of suitable habitat called refugia as the ice sheets crept towards the equator. As the ice sheets retreated north again, these once isolated populations would have then remixed. Biologists are interested in where these hiding places were, and whilst this all happened thousands of years ago, it did leave clues in the salmon genome. Here's Jamie. When you look at the contemporary genetic structure of a population, we can learn something about the populations that may have contributed to it in the past, and uh, something about the history of that population, i.e. whether it's been through a population bottleneck, whether it's experienced particularly small sample size such that a lot of uh, loci within it have gone to fixation. We can look for signatures of reduced genetic diversity, which would be other ways in which we could see uh, whether a population had experienced some kind of restriction in gene flow. Most of these things come back to barriers, whether they be physical barriers or whether they be kind of innate species barriers that interact to reduce gene flow, and we can pick up various signatures of that. Okay, and one physical process that we know to have had an effect on the range of species was, of course, the Pleistocene glaciations. Just uh, give me a kind of potted history of of those. Well, species that were affected uh, would have either had to move or adapt. And so what we see is we see displacement of species or we see isolation of species within certain areas that, that, that are called um, refuges or refugia. And within those refugia, the species affected would essentially be going through mini bottlenecks within those refugia, such that while they're in there, the gene flow between them and other parts of the species group will be restricted. And post-ice, once the species are able to expand out of those refugia, we'll be able to pick up signatures as previously isolated groups start to come back together again. And we can start to see sort of a mosaic in species that that, that are what's called secondary contact zones. And so what's our current understanding then of the the, the main European refugia then? There's still a lot of discussion about where salmon went and how they persisted, but there's certainly in the more sort of eastern regions of the European range of Atlantic salmon, there's discussion about a lake somewhere in the region of the Baltic and in the western part of the range on the Atlantic seaboard. We've long since known uh, about the existence of a refuge for salmon in northern Spain, but it now appears um, that there was also a refuge for salmon in uh, northwest France. 
and to us that's been quite a new perspective on what we believe um, was the, the sort of distribution of uh, salmon during the, the last glacial maximum. Okay, so you have been tracking the glacial history of the Atlantic salmon and the, and, and the point in this paper is that you think you've sort of spotted a new cryptic refuge. Yeah, well, when we looked at contemporary populations of salmon in northern Spain, northwest France, and in uh, the British Isles, what we saw was genetic signatures of salmon in northern Spain, quite distinct from the signatures of salmon in northwest France. And the genetic signatures of fish within the British Isles were more of a mosaic. Uh, and this got us to thinking about um, the idea that the contemporary populations of salmon in the British Isles are essentially made up of a mosaic, which is made up of recolonizers coming from northern Spain and northwest France. Now, the northern Spain region has long been recognized um, for a range of species, in fact. And we wanted to see if there was other evidence that might support this idea of northwest France being a refuge for this particular group in northwest France, which actually has more of a Baltic uh, type haplotype, even though they're on the Atlantic. And we looked at evidence coming out from about 2005, and it's coming out more regularly now, that the area around Herd Deep, which is, a, which is a quite a deep scour at the end of the English Channel, which has, at the time of the last glacial maximum, then offered a, a maritime refuge uh, off the coast of northwest France. And there's a lot of evidence that that was a refuge for various types of seaweed um, and at least some marine mollusks. And so we got to thinking, well, if the, if the climate and, and the conditions are right for a maritime refuge, um, you know, one, one might imagine that the that maritime influence on, on that sort of peninsular area of northwest France could have been the basis for a, a land-based refuge, albeit for a freshwater organism. Presumably, what would put the nail in the coffin would be some salmon bones in northwestern France. It would. And there is a study by a group led by um, Sonia Consuegra at Aberystwyth University that, that found some salmon bones in northern Spain. It would be nice if we could uh, find something on a par with that from the uh, Brittany region of northwest France. Yeah, that would be, would be great to have that kind of actual prehistoric uh, artefacts. And so how do you match up the signatures in the contemporary genetics to specific geographical locations like in these refugia? Well, we're pegging them to a geographical location based on, you know, we find them there right now. One of the things that we, we don't know, of course, is, is what's there now representative of what was there previously? We cannot answer that unless we had ancient DNA. But what we can see is we can play around with some clever statistical um, tools to show divergence times and times of when things that we postulate are ancestral then came together in contemporary Britain and Ireland populations, which we believe to be the sort of mosaic that's been created by the mixing of the ancestral populations from northern Spain and northwest France. Was the problem of these glaciations unique to species like salmon that have to come back to the same freshwater habitat to breed? I think that's a problem for all species, but some species are, are able to deal with it. Some species, the, the individuals concerned, are able to, to move. Other species, large numbers of them, would simply have been wiped out. And presumably for those species, the ones that remain 
are ones that that were kind of below the limit of the glacial extent whereas for something for a migratory species they've at least got a chance to kind of move and to find a new habitat is this information just kind of historically interesting or does it have implications for the future with a kind of changing climate it's obviously uh interesting from a historical perspective but i think it has massive implications for um future changes in environmental conditions and then it comes down to whether species can move or adapt or at least in the short term acclimate to those changes to allow them to keep reproducing um, and then i think there will come points where for a terrestrial species they may just run out of land or something uh, and for a, a freshwater species that, that, that needs you know freshwater habitat for its to reproduce in and if that doesn't suddenly we're in a situation where um, species will literally just kind of f fall off the edge of their habitat cliff as it were and you know that's when i think we'll see potentially quite marked extinctions but there are things that we can perhaps do to ameliorate that we can we can look at ways of identifying habitat to sort of preserve stepping stones for species to be able to sort of bridge gaps within their range and that leads into the whole uh, issue of marine protected areas which you know i think will become you know marine protected and their uh, their terrestrial equivalents will 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 be extremely extremely valuable uh, probably within my lifetime and certainly um within within that of my kids and that's it for this month join us again next time for another episode of the heredity podcast ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row dreaming of something better well hello fresh is your guilt-free dream come true baby it's me geeky palmer let's wake up those taste buds with hot juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi mm. hello fresh stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at hellofresh.com let's get this dinner party started 